you're, you'll emotionally keep punishing someone even if they don't know you're doing it right. <laughs> from, you know, five states away Sure. in order to hold on to the pieces of you you're not ready to let go of. But at some point it became more important to me to be free yes. and to have all of myself back than it was to hold on to my grief and to hold on to my anger towards him. Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect with Beautiful Disaster. These are the stories of our tribe. They are important, powerful, and will undoubtedly change you. Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect with Beautiful Disaster. It is our mission to provide you with content that is powerful and will inspire you to be the very best version of yourself. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, every single one of you are a perfectly imperfect miracle and we are honored that you would invest your time with us. We have a very special guest on today's show. What happened in her life and to her family is something that will affect you on a very deep level, but it's what she has done with her circumstances that will inspire you to your core. So I would like to proudly introduce you to Sarah Montana, who has an incredible TED Talk about the real risk of forgiveness and why it's worth it. And Sarah, welcome to the show and thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a guest and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so honored to be here. I love what this clothing line represents and its mission and just like the way that you're taking people's stories and helping them like stand in their own power is just so inspiring. Oh. It's like a dream come true oh. to have a business that fuses itself with that kind of mission. Thank you. So. Thank you so much. Um, and I do, I want to let the audience know that you know, prior to a podcast and a YouTube interview, you know, I get all my notes together and I share them. I shared it with you and I was like, okay, so that you're prepared and I'm prepared. Here's kind of how I see things going. And I just want to thank you so much for being so authentically yourself that you said, hang on, can we back it up a little bit? Because I wanted to dive right into the story, which you're going to share with us. And I kind of went down the road of focusing on the person who is the villain in your story. And I just want you to share with our audience exactly what you asked of me because I am just so grateful that you said it exactly the way you said it. So tell them how you, how you opened my eyes to how this should go. <laughs> I, it's so funny because I was kind of nervous. I was like, oh, I hope this isn't stepping on toes. Wow. Um, but I emailed you back and was like, listen, I am so excited to share this story. Um, but if it's okay with you, I'd rather focus on the story first instead of going straight to the perpetrator. Yes. Because when you're a victim, um, a lot of times in the media, I think a lot of us feel, or even as we're trying to deconstruct what happened, we focus on the perpetrator because we want to find a reason for everything. And what ends up happening is that victims lose a lot of power again. This cycle repeats where their perpetrators get all of the power and they're left with nothing and all of the focus goes there. And then what we've seen, especially with uh, with gun violence, which is what my story is about, um, it, it actually emboldens other people to kill more people because they realize they will get attention for that. And most of us can't, I mean, most of us can name very famous gun gunmen from the past couple of years, but we can't really name the people who were killed. Oh my God, um, you're so right. You, you're so right. And I'm just so appreciative of you teaching me that very valuable lesson because we're almost conditioned to behave this way. And you're so right that 
the glory goes in the exact opposite direction that it should go in. And I, I'm, I'm forever changed by you graciously stopping in my track. So no, you did not step on my toes. <laughs> you enlightened me. And I know you're gonna continue to enlighten me and you're gonna continue to enlighten this tribe of women who are perfectly imperfect and on their healing journey, just like you are. So please take us through your story, Sarah. All right. So um, when I was 21 years old, it was uh, December 19th, 2008. I was home from winter break for college. I went out with my boyfriend um, and uh, to drop something off at his mom's office. And um, while I was at my dad's office, we got a phone call from my brother um, that he had found my brother Jim on the couch, that he was bleeding, that he wasn't, he was in such shock that he wasn't really, he wasn't really clear on what he was seeing. And by the time we got home, the police had arrived, the EMTs had arrived, and it was clear that my mom and my brother Jim had been killed. They had been shot um, to death in our home in what appeared to be an armed uh, robbery attempt. And it turned out that they were killed by a kid from our neighborhood who was 17. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and do the thing, like, because, you know, after you've told the story a, a number of times, you know what the immediate questions are. Um, he wasn't on drugs. He wasn't mentally ill um, in any sense, except that it does take a certain mental illness, I think, honestly, that lives in all of us in order to kill someone. Yeah. Um, he wasn't in a gang or anything like that. He was a kid who had robbed a couple of other houses before and had a slight record in that sense. Um, he was just trying to make cash before Christmas essentially. Mm. And he didn't expect that anybody was going to be home. Mm. Um, my brother, Jim and I were both in college together. I was a sophomore. He, I was a senior. He was a sophomore. Um, and so he found Jim asleep on the couch, panicked and shot him. <sighs> he left and then realized that he forgot his coat so he came back to get his coat. And by at that point, my mom had come home and she had found Jim oh my God. Uh, dead on the couch. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was it was very intense. Um, it's a it's a rare situation in that most homicides in families, especially double homicides, are usually from within the family. Right. Um, and so one of the um, you know, it's it's enough. I think for a person to try to process that this has happened, that they've lost the two most important people in their lives. Um, but it also kind of became a little bit of a media circus yeah, immediately. I'm sure. I'm sure. So just to go backwards um, for the audience. So he left. Mm -hmm. During the time that he left, your mom came home. Mm -hmm. He remembered that he left his coat. He came back to find that now your mom knew. And then mm -hmm. he took her life. Yes. So oh he God. took, he, he shot my brother, um, actually we think while Jim was still asleep. Uh, and then he took a couple of things to sell. He brought them to a person who was already ready to give him cash for those items. And then he realized he'd forgotten his coat. So he came back to our house. My mom had found Jim and, uh, and he, he knew that my mom recognized him. They had an altercation. And I think in his panic, um, and, you know, for, for whatever reason, in that moment, the prospect of being caught, you know, in the fight or flight in that moment was he, there's not a thinking clearly no. in a moment like that, I think is the right way to put it. Oh my God. Um, that's, yeah, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm sorry. You know, I can't, there's no, 
there's no words, there's no description. Um, unfortunately, I lost two people that I love very, very much, um, very suddenly in a horrific car accident. It does not, it doesn't compare to, you know, the, the means that you lost your loved ones, but I, I know a bit about how that feels. So I, I share that with you. I'm so sorry about, I mean, look, I don't think it's, there's no comparing any no. grief. I think that's yeah. always a fool's errand. And yeah. there's a, there's something, you know, there's like, I don't want to say pros and cons, but there's just like each, each individual trauma is its own thing. It is. It and is. losing someone suddenly is, you know, like I've lost relatives to cancer too. And it's like, each of them come with their own. I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss like shit sandwich. <laughs> it's beautiful disaster. You can freaking cuss. Or I should have said you can fucking cuss. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Yeah, it's like every version of losing someone comes with its own shit sandwich. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, losing people that suddenly is a shock and a trauma that you have to process. Yeah. Um, and there's so much you don't get to like, you don't really get to say goodbye. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, watching some of my, re you know, some of my relatives suffer for months and years on end. Yes. <laughs> that's its own version yeah, of terrible. I, I too have so. had that experience as well. And and you're right. It's, they're both traumatic and um, equally painful, but vastly different. Yes. Vastly different. So uh, I, I just, you know, there's, there's no words, just like nobody had the right words for me. Nope. And guess what? <laughs> guess what? It's okay. Like, it's okay to just say, I'm sorry, I can't imagine that. You know, I've experienced people saying like, everything happens for a reason. And oh, I'm like, gosh, let's just not. <laughs> let's not do that. I, You're so right. It is like, I, if nothing else, I wish we could just start having, I mean, what you're doing right now is, is amazing because we need to start having more conversations about what to say and how to comfort people. Yes. You don't realize how ill-equipped we are as a nation. We're like, we're so scared of death as a culture yeah. that when it happens, we have no experience with it. So we just don't know what to say. Absolutely. I got a lot of everything happens for a reason. And then some people who didn't like were straight up, uh, thought they were being helpful, but were kind of like rude. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I had somebody who's like, have a merry, try to have a merry Christmas and a nice rest of your life, even though I know that's impossible. Like, <laughs> I was like, cool, cool, thanks. Cool. Like, I guess the rest of, I'm 21, but the rest of my life's just a wash. You're just screwed. It's, just, it's over. There's no Let's coming back. <laughs> Christmas is canceled. It's fine. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Well, whoever wrote that card was very wrong because <laughs> as we're going to get into more of your story, um, that wasn't it for you. And you've really turn this into an amazing message. You are an incredible messenger and um, I, I just love for you to keep going. Yeah. Um, so I think um, an, an important part of the story, and you don't get to say this when you're doing a 15 minute TED talk, yeah. is that um, I spent the first couple of years after they died really trying to prove everyone wrong. There is this cultural perception when something happens to you that is traumatic, that that is who you are now. There's this big neon sign above your head and people look at you as if you're very broken and that you're never going to be okay again. 
And um, I was convinced that I was still a whole person, that it was more just like the sun was blocked for a while, right. um, that there were clouds, but that I was going to get to a safe place. And so uh, the first thing I want to say is like, if something like this happens, if your family's been murdered, if you've been sexually assaulted, I mean, the first, your first prerogative before you do anything else is to get to a safe place, is mm -hmm. to just get yourself, build, rebuild a life where you feel like you finally have permission to fall apart. Um, right. and that's, that's what the first couple of years were. And I, I went to grad school. I decided I want to be a writer. I got married, um, you know, and then, and I was young, I was in my twenties and I decided I just wanted a desk job to pay the bills. I worked at a hedge fund, bum, bum, bum for, uh, two, for two years to give myself great health insurance, a, so I could go to therapy Yes, and B because I knew I wanted to write, but I needed a safe space for a while where money wasn't part of the equation. Right. So I was getting up every day and I was writing before I went to work, I would get up at 5.30, write, and then go to the office. And I started working on this play. And I started taking a playwriting class. And it was a play about what happened to my family, but it was me cleaning out the house by myself, which is what I had to do after they died, um, sort of trapped in this house with my mom and my brother's ghosts and uh, the kid who killed them. Right. And in the play, I just called him X. And the play was really cathartic to write and it was, it was in a really good place. And I had some, uh, artistic mentors who encouraged me to quit my job and just really write this play and focus on my writing, which was amazing. And I did it and I took the leap. Um, and then it got to be about July. I'd been, I was a month out of my job and I realized I didn't have an ending for this play because I hadn't lived it. Ah, here's, here's the, the plot, scary. the plot thickens, <laughs> the plot literally thickens or needed to, thicken. right? So I'm writing this and, and I, um, I structured the play so that he could only say the words in the play that were in his confession. Um, because that's all I really had of him. Right. You know, so many of us have villains where we're never going to get clear answers. We're never going to have a conversation with them. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or if we are going to have a conversation with them, it's not going to be healthy or cathartic. Um, and I was using this play to do that, but I realized from a dramatic standpoint, I could either kill him or I was going to have to forgive him. Mm. And I had to really sit down with myself and say, well, what am I going to, which am I going to do? Because I've told myself from a very early point of this process that I forgive him, that he's forgiven. Right. Uh, and I did that because I thought it would make, uh, I thought I was doing it for pure reasons right. in retrospect. I think I did it for three reasons. And I talked about this in the Ted talk. Um, first, on some level, I thought it made me a good person. I was like, well, I'm a good person. And, uh, and so if I'm a good person and forgiveness is good, then the quicker I forgive, uh, the better person I'll be. Right. Uh, second, I think you feel a lot of permission to either hate that person or forgive them. Right. Like our culture either wants you to be Liam Neeson and go yeah. full like a vengeance yes. or, or they want you to be this angelic mother Teresa figure. Right. We're kind of looking for people to victims to be inspirational in either way. Um, and then the third thing was that I think in my early twenties, and I think a lot of us feel this way. I thought forgiving him was a spiritual bypass to healing. Mm. So if like, I like did, this is a, a, a box that I, I need to tick. Yes. And it's like, it's almost like somebody told you that like the last thing you'll have to check before you're better is that you'll have to forgive him. And you're like, well, if I do it now, right, then yeah. I'll be that much closer to the end of the marathon. I'm like, a go-getter. Let's just totally. get right to the end. I'm an A student. Like, right. why wouldn't I just give this guy right away? Yeah. Um, turns out that saying that you forgive someone isn't the same thing as actually doing it. Right. 
forgiveness is this very intense process. And so the play prompted me to do a bunch of research and to go on. I, okay. I want to say I joked in the Ted talk that I went on a spiritual vision quest and <laughs> I got all these YouTube comments that were like, well, I stopped listening to this when she said spiritual vision quest. I didn't go to the desert and like, you know, follow a wolf or anything right. like that. <laughs> By that I mean, I opened a lot of books and I right. read a lot of articles. Right. Um, but I did start uh, diving into, and I read a lot of medical studies, a lot of um, studies on the role of forgiveness in 9-11 victims' lives oh. and how how that played into their healing process. And it became really clear that this is, um, it's not something that you can just declare. Right. There are many steps to this thing. Um, and one of the things that um, was the most eye-opening to me is that forgiveness, um, all forgiveness can really do is set you free of that person. Right. Um, I didn't really know this kid very well. I was friends with his older siblings. Uh, we actually were in choir together. They're really great people. They're both like one of them's a doctor now, one of them's a nurse. Like they're really yeah. wonderful humans um, right. who I adored. Uh, but I didn't know him very well. He was I was 21 and he was 17. Um, and yet I had this complicated relationship with him where he was the face of everything that was going wrong in my life. Yes. Um, you know, when your trauma is keeping you from from doing the things you want to do in your life when it feels like oh, I got a beautiful letter from this uh, 16 year old girl in Germany recently. And she said that she felt like her trauma was a piece of glass that mm. was standing between she and the rest of the world that right. she couldn't feel things or see things or interact because trauma was this barrier. Right. She could see through it, but she couldn't uh, interact the same way. Right. Right. And when you're up against a glass wall, pressing your face to the world, wanting to be a part of it, yeah. um, you, st you start to, the face of the person who caused that trauma becomes your villain and it becomes really easy to blame them for yes. everything that's going wrong in your life. Yes. Uh, and I realized that I was letting him be that and keeping him around because I couldn't get rid of him on some level without getting rid of mom and Jim too. Sure. Um, and not rid of them. They are always going to be a part of my life. But right. I had this miss, uh, I had this myth in my head that when I, if I forgave him, then I was going to stop grieving them Yes, and they were be gone. Yes. And so it's a very, very gonna... real fear. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like you're, you'll emotionally keep punishing someone, even if they don't know you're doing it, right. <laughs> from, you know, five States away Sure. in order to hold on to the pieces of you, you're not ready to let go of. Right. Um, but at some point it became more important to me to be free Yes. And to have all of myself back than it was to hold on to my grief and to hold on to my anger towards him. Right. Um, so sorry, I'm like rambling. No, <laughs> no, I, I just I I agree with every single thing you're saying. I, I can put it into my own head and my own experiences. And, and, you know, what comes to mind for me is you had survivor's responsibility well it went from survivor's guilt to re survivor's responsibility and I I so know what you mean by it's like that guilt gives you a purpose for this yes. for this time being and the attachment to that purpose is so hard to let go of yeah it, yeah so and and I, I think that's exactly what you're explaining is is you saw it on the other side through that sheet of glass and you really had to take some steps 
to break through that glass. So, you know, what did, what did you start to do? I think the first thing was, um, was there was a passage, uh, I was reading about forgiveness in different cultures and a light bulb moment for me was that there's an aspect of Judaism in which they talk about how God can only forgive crimes against God and you can only forgive what has happened to you Mm. and, um, surrounding like specific religious holidays. And that was a light bulb moment for me in the sense that I realized that trying to forgive him for killing my mother and brother was not my responsibility. Ah. I can't forgive him for killing mom and Jim because it didn't, that's not what happened to me. What happened to me is that I lost my mother and brother. Right. And so I, the first thing that was really the step towards, um, like, uh, owning forgiveness was that I let go of trying to forgive right away. And I let myself get angry and I really let myself get sad. Um, and I took an inventory. I sat down with my journal and I wrote down what my specific wounds were. Like I made a full inventory of like, what are all of the ways in which this action affected me personally? What did I lose? What did, in what ways did I get hurt? And that also made me get a little bit clearer about what I owned in this process. Like where was I blaming him and this action for things that were in fact my reaction? Like my mom and my brother not being at my wedding, that is his fault. Right. Um, you know, he, uh, saying yes to the wrong guy when he asked me to marry him and then calling off my wedding. That's not him. That one's oh, on me. <laughs> right, know? right. Like, that was a reaction. That's but not, it sure would have been nice that. to continue to blame him for that. 100%. <laughs> well, what's funny is because I was blaming him for so much, um, other people were blaming him too. So like, for example, in that relationship, I stayed with the wrong guy right. for a long time because my, my gut, when my gut was screaming that I was in the wrong relationship, I kept telling myself that I couldn't trust my gut because I was traumatized and I was, Ah. had PTSD and I was in grief. And so, yeah, I was getting all these signals that I should break up with him, but you know, I, I, I'm probably just having a hard time and I'm probably just depressed and it's probably anxiety and it's probably all these other things, except the very obvious thing that I was in the wrong relationship. And I'm sure that that was validated time and time again by other people who are like, yeah, you know, you probably just aren't thinking clearly. And meanwhile, your gut's going, run! (laughs) 100%. It's funny, everybody at the time was just like, you know, you've been through a lot. Of course you're stressed. And then after I called off the wedding, of course, it was like, everybody was like, well, I didn't like that guy anyway. Of course. (laughs) Always how it goes. Yes. But that, but getting clear on that list of like, what... Like, what are my wounds? What is it that I, that like, at the end of the day, forgiveness is this, uh, or not forgiveness, but like when somebody hurts you, there's this tether between you and them. You're connected Mm. by this cord. Um, Or if you want to call it a chain, whatever you want to call it, there's this like steel cable between you where you're connected. And forgiveness is the act of of unhooking your end of that thing. Mm. Um, And saying that like, these are the, the ways in which you hurt me justice would require that I am owed for those things. Right. Um, forgiveness is, is the decision to say like, I know what you did. It's not okay, but I don't need anything from you. I don't need an apology. I don't need answers. Maybe because those answers and apologies wouldn't do what you like. They're not going to be worth anything at this point. Right. And it's the, it's saying you don't owe me anything. I release you. 
I wish you a happy life. And it's funny because I think a lot of people are resistant to forgiveness because they think it means that you're saying it is okay. Right. Um, they, but it's the complete opposite. You can't forgive something that was okay. Right. It can only be forgiveness if you're acknowledging that this was absolutely not okay. Right. Um, and if anything, what you're doing is letting that person go from your life in the role that they're serving. Like, right. I've forgiven family members before who are still in my life. It's releasing them from me feeling like they owe me an apology or, or, or they owe me love or nurturing or, or, or I don't know what it is. Like, it's like you can't really forgive until you're very clear on what expectation you're releasing from the relationship. Right. And then that person's kind of freed up to be a normal person again, instead of this archetypal figure in your life. And, um, you mentioned in your Ted talk that, um, you had this moment where you realize that he was a real person. Yes. And that was so profound in your story because we, we can build up these walls, you know, of concrete, you know, and, and brick and steel and never come to the realization that there's a human on the other side of that tether. Because you totally. never, you never, you never want to think they could be a human because that would be too scary. Well, and think about the ways that like when you're in a small fight with someone, like if you get in a fight with a close girlfriend, um, we villainize, we blow them out and they stop being a person even in small fights. Yeah. So like if, you know, if I'm in a fight with my friend Shannon and we haven't spoken to each other in two days and then I see that she's posted something on Facebook, I'm immediately making it about oh, me. Yes. She's like a terrible person who's like saying this specifically to get under my skin. Yes. So like if we do that with small things, I mean- I am the first to admit that um, in order to, a lot of other people in my family were able to get really um, angry with him. They were able yeah. to hate him on a level that I actually felt blocked about. And I felt, yeah. it, I actually felt like maybe I was a bad person or that I, uh, like, I felt a lot of guilt about the fact that I couldn't hate him. Right. Um, and it took me a while to realize what was happening was that I had stopped making him a person. Mm. He was like a storm that came through and ripped my house up and then it landed in Oz. Right. He was like this force that came through my life, but I had, my brain had compartmentalized him into an action, not a person. Right. Um, and then I decided, um, to do a little bit of research into what his life was like now. I read all of the court documents, um, cause I wanted to understand the, the sentence and what was happening. And for a while, and this is no longer true, actually, since the Ted talk, this has changed. But at the time that I was going through this journey, he was in a maximum, you know, security federal prison where the, where the prisoners are in solitary confinement up to 23 hours a day in these eight by 10 cells with just like slats for light is the description of it. I mean, mm. this prison had hunger strikes from the prisoners multiple times. And it's been a subject of human rights, uh, watches before. And the, the image to me of this 17 year old, he wasn't 17 anymore, but of this person who now, by the time I was taking this journey had spent the time that I spent in college, this kid spent in that environment. Right. Like we're supposed to have prisons in order to prisons are about the debt we owe to society, right? It's it ideally should be a situation where we're rehabilitating people so they right. can either enter society again or if we can't have them re-enter society. And I know that not everyone will agree with me on this, but I, I do not think that it is um that it, it spiritually behooves us to create environments where we're torturing people either. Right. I don't think that that 
the, as a victim, I don't find any pleasure in that. There's right. not actually any comfort in knowing that someone else is in pain. Right. My comfort purely comes from a safety standpoint. Right. I need to know that you're not going to kill anyone else. Yes. I don't need to know that you're being like, I don't believe in reducing humans and saying that like, oh, he's an animal because he did this. I think that's, that actually is worse for us. Right. Like, the people who are saying that, I think it, it starts to denigrate our yeah. emotional health. Yeah, um, I can I can definitely agree with that. Um, you know, the the person who was responsible for taking the lives of my family members. If I were to continue to get updates on how horrible he was doing versus getting updates on him, let's just say going out and speaking against texting and driving, going out and speaking against drinking and driving, having the yes. opportunity to save other people from the pain that he caused our family that would be justice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That is so powerful. Yes. That is exactly it. Like yeah. I don't, I, I had this image that he was in a cell being mistreated even more. Right. And that now this, now it's getting worse. You think when of it, the monster doing push-ups, getting stronger yeah. and stronger. And it's like, how is that going to help anybody involved? Right. Yeah. And that, and that like, there is a certain amount of compassion that is lacking already if you're able to kill someone, even yes. in your own um, self-interest, right? right? Even if it's not um, malicious. I mean, I know malicious is the wrong word, but like he did this because he was panicked about getting caught. He right. didn't do it, uh, like, you know. Um, right. it's, it was cold-blooded, but it wasn't like um, premeditated, was no right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It so was, the, oh shit. Totally. Oh shit. Totally. And there is a cold-blooded component here, but yeah. I think it's like, like to me, that person, uh, is, has now been shown less and less and less compassion. And yeah. I do think whatever we're fed grows, whatever our capacities are. Absolutely. Like if I'm constantly speaking to what is strong about you and what is good about you, those things in you will grow. Yes. If I'm constantly speaking to what your, your weaknesses are and what's bad about you and treating you like crap, those things are going to grow. Yes. And, um, and I, I thought a lot about that as I was going through this process and I decided I was going to write him a letter. Um, and my family, not all my family, but I had like a, a cousin take me out to dinner and, you know, a lot of my family does, didn't agree with my decision to forgive him or right. felt like me doing that was condoning, was condemning their process, which is absolutely not everybody's journey with this is so individual. Yes. Um, and if anything, I think it's really important that if you're not ready or forgiveness is not going to help you, you shouldn't do it. Right. We've got a lot of people who say, well, like you have to forgive. You absolutely do not. You like it won't actually work if you don't mean it. Right. And if you haven't done the work. Right. Um, and it's not, I don't think it's actually uh, morally superior to do it. I think it's, it's important to do it if you feel called to do it yes. and you feel that it's going to liberate you. And for me, it did right. um, partially because I wanted on some level, a mostly I wanted that freedom, but B some part of me knew that um, I had an opportunity to feed the good part of him. Right. Um, and, and so I, and just to let him know that he wasn't, that I was not one more person out here actively hating him. Right. Uh, felt important to me. Now, I didn't ever get a response. So, and I knew that going in, you cannot do this with any expectation as to what the answer is going to be. Right. Um, he may have gotten it and ripped it up and said like, fuck you. I didn't yeah. ask for your forgiveness. Right. Um, he might've gotten it and said, you know, I'd fucking do it again. And right. you know, 
like that's fine too. Um, he may have never gotten it because it's yeah. a prison and it's a bureaucratic system and whatever. Sure. He may have it and he may have tucked it in a drawer and he might suddenly need it in 25 years. Sure. Uh, that part of it is just like any gift that you give. Like once I send it, it's not mine anymore. It's right. not up to me. Oh, that, um, is, that is so humbling to to hear you share that experience because a lot of us live in the if this, then that world. Mm. So if this happens, then I know I did the right thing. If this happens, totally. then maybe I did the wrong thing. Like for you to really be at such a place where you could put that letter in the mail and detach from the expectation is just such a testament to the work that you've been doing on yourself. And I, I just, that's amazing. Well, you know, it's, it's, thank you, A, so much for saying that. But B, the... I, what you're saying about if then is so true of our culture, but the irony is, is that when I released that attachment to needing him to say something back, yeah. I realized that the validation that I'd done the right thing came through how I felt about what I did and how my life transformed yes. after I sent that letter. Yes. Um, I walked away from that mailbox and it, I took like three steps and it was like this pressure in my chest. I didn't know I'd been carrying unwound and burst. Wow. Like it was, it was like physical. I, it was a physical reaction right. where I felt like I was like giving birth to a whole new version of myself. Wow. And also like I had released the girl version of me that got trapped at 21 when this happened. It was yeah. like saying hello to a stranger, but like a really old friend right. all at once. Um, and everything changed after that. Like there, I did not realize how much space had been taken up in my brain and in my heart and in my body. Um, there was suddenly so much room for all of these amazing things to come in wow. that I didn't realize I'd been blocking. My career completely changed after I did this. People and people like this is this is gonna sound so woo woo, and I don't mean for it to, <laughs> but like. You give a TED talk about forgiveness, and then every motherfucker you've ever needed to forgive comes out of public <laughs> work. <laughs> like, they all just show oh up. Oh, my God. They show up in your inbox, and you're like, oh, I guess oh. I'm going to do the rest of this work now, too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but it did sort of um, trigger these two or three years of, I mean, I guess it's been a year since I gave the TED talk, like 18 months. And the amount that my life has changed in that amount of time, even from just sharing the story. Like yeah. it's, it's one thing to send the letter yeah. and then there's standing up in front of the world and saying, I'm owning that I did this. Yes. And look, I got a lot of hate mail about it too. Not right. everybody thought it was a good thing. Right. Um, uh, on all ends of the spectrum, of course, but, but you own it and you realize that, uh, there was something about that process where I realized I was going to be tested ah, again and again. Yeah. Like, A, do you still forgive him when you find out this about him? Will you still, like, you say that you can forgive this person. Can you forgive, you know, this relative or this friend or this former boss or this, you know, and you suddenly realize you have, I was like, okay, I'm going to see if I can do the same thing. But the process gets faster each time. Right. Until suddenly you realize that you're, um, you're not building up walls to block people out. You're actually receiving more from people. It's just that you're learning how to heal yourself that much faster. Well, you're you're now capable. Yes. We're not capable when this happens. We don't yeah. know we don't know anything. We're we're just putting one foot in front of the other and waiting to see how you feel the next day and you know, it's kind of like <sighs> 
it's kind of like anything. I mean, if you don't have the tools, yeah. you can't do the work. 100%. And, and now you have the tools and that's why you're able to work a little more swiftly. You know, you can be more productive with totally. the work that you're doing. And that's why I just think it's such a gift to um, be able to share your story. And, you know, I'd love for you to get into what some of those tools are. I mean, anybody that's listening or watching this, if they can take some tangible things and try to apply them themselves to be able to begin this type of a process would be a gift that would be amazing to share with anybody and everybody. Totally, totally. Um, I actually, so the biggest thing for me, uh, well, there's, I mean, there's lots of things. Um, the biggest thing that is like very individually that you can control no matter what your resources are, no matter where in the world you are, um, for me was writing and mm. there's actually brain science behind this. Um, it is great to share. It's great to talk about your experiences or what's happening, but there is a physical sensation in your body and in your brain when you move what you're thinking about and feeling out through your arm onto a page, whether it's computer or by hand, the act of moving that out of your body yes. puts it in an external container, ah. which means that you don't have to carry it anymore. Oh, good. Um, it helps yes. you make sense of it. And then the next step of that process is, um, so I started going on these retreats uh, called gateless writing retreats. And it's based on neuroscience and it's got a little bit of uh, meditation techniques okay. involved in it. And the idea is you're in a group of people. She'll give you a prompt. You have 25 minutes to write and it's free writing. Don't censor anything that's coming into your uh, head. And then you immediately have to read it out loud and you get feedback. You're not allowed to talk. Um, and everybody only gives you feedback about what's strong what's working in the piece, uh, what had resonance, and they can't refer to themselves. They can't say like, oh, well, when my uncle died, blah, blah, blah. No, they can right. only talk about your piece. Yes. Um, and the reason for that is what you focus on grows. But mm. the other piece of it that was really important is that um, you have to get trauma out of your body into an external container, and then you have to have your, it, you have to have an audience for it. You have to have someone mirror back to you that they're hearing it, yeah. they're taking in your story, because that makes it real. Right. And it helps you start to make sense of it. Right. But you can only do that with people who are not going to attack you and tell you how weak you are and yes. perpetuate a loop. Yes. Trauma Trauma is a loop that we get stuck on. Right. You keep reliving the same moment over and over again. You get stuck in a certain pattern or thought behavior. And when you write something down and you share it and somebody tells you what's strong about you in that yeah. piece, that's how you break the loop. Wow. Wow. That's um, amazing. You, yeah. So that, you, you mentioned um, the inventory. So I, I'm picking up on, on how much you get it from here to here. And mm -hmm. a lot of us have that internal com compartmentalization, whatever. Yes, totally, <laughs> totally. And I love that you say it gets it to an outside container mm -hmm. so that we don't have to carry it. So that that is so profound. It's huge because, um, and, and I did, a, there are a lot of studies about writing, even journaling for people who are uh, going through trauma. Because at the if you just dump everything that's in your brain, um, Julia Cameron talks about an artist's way, like doing morning pages where you write, you know, three pages and uh, everything that comes into your head and then you walk away. Right. The beauty of that is you get it all out and then you close the book. 
Mm. And then you walk away and you go on with the the rest of your day. Yeah. doesn't mean you're not thinking about it, but it's just purging it. Like, because stories and trauma, they live in your body and your muscles and it starts to affect your health. Like, absolutely, get it out. Yeah. Uh, the other things that I did um, were that were the most helpful was support network, support network, support network. Yeah. Um, I, the difference between us and a lot of other families is that like, look, my mom was a volunteer in our community. She like was the choir mom. She yes. was on the park authority board. She like, like everybody knew mama Smith, but mm. she just was that person in our community. Yeah. And our house was the house after school where kids could come for snacks. Uh, it was where everybody did their homework. We had a piano. Like it yes. was like, it's just that we were that house. And because we were that house, when mom and Jim died, there were thousands, I'm not kidding when I say like 2,500 people came to that funeral, like thousands of people showed up to support us. Yeah. Um, when you're, I know it feels counterintuitive, but when you're like the worst thing that trauma does is convinces us that we're alone and that we're isolated. Right. And it's a feeling, but it's an illusion. Yeah. You, no matter how crappy the people in your life are, you're never actually alone. And so if you want to heal you have to resist the urge. Look, take care of, we talk a lot about self-care. Yeah. Some days you do need to lay on the couch and like binge the entire office. Right. Um, but every opportunity you have to go out there and connect with someone and to just be with them and to remind yourself that you're not alone, take the opportunity. Just it like is don't... an absolute gateway. It is, it, it is, yeah. it is like walking through doors that can open up something so new. Um, I've got a family member who is not willing at all. He's just not there. He's just, he yeah. just can't bring himself to do it. Um, and all of us are, are pulling for him. Like we know that gateways there. Like if you would just connect with other people that have had similar experiences and talk about it and get it off your heart and get it off your chest. But that's another element to it is nobody can do it for you. Yes. Yes. And we, we want it for him more than he wants it for himself. And we have to just be okay with that. Yes. That's, that's a toughie. That's a toughie. It's so hard. It's so true. Yeah. It's so hard. My brother used to jokingly say, cause everybody in our family has been on their own timeline too. Um, and he used to joke that he would get this anxiety. It was almost like we were all running a relay race and he was like, come on, man, you can't trip. We're all like going together. Like you got to keep coming. Right. Um, and it is hard when you want that more for your family member or for your friend. Um, but, and it's, but the, it ultimately does have to come from them. It just like does. they have to want it. Yeah. And, and it is, it's a balance of constantly showing them that the hand is always there. Yeah. Like you are always ready to, to pull them up with hand extended, but knowing that you can't force them to their feet. No. Otherwise they're just going to slump again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like they have to exercise those muscles and stand up and absolutely it's hard, but, but it's one of those things where I have this group of friends that I've had since, since middle school and high school and they all, you know, we went to college together and then they moved to New York with me and like, you know, this tragedy brought us together. It's made yeah. us a family. Right. Um, like you always have an, like some of us were not born into families that support us right? or that we feel like we can be a part of. But the thing that makes us human is that like the, what separates humans from any other animal group, even though other animals work in packs, we are so community driven and we have the ability to use communities to do all of these things. Like yeah. 
making families, whether they're chosen or blood is like, it's just in our DNA. It's yes. what we do. Yeah. Like, so don't ever think that like, there's nothing you can do or nothing that can happen to you that will make you incapable of being loved or of loving other people anymore. Mm. Um, if anything, an experience like this, if you keep, if you keep going, um, an experience like this can tear down the veil and let you see like the, the most beautiful parts of being human. It lets you connect on a far deeper level. Yeah. If you're willing to go there. If you're willing, I, I once said that through the tragedy of losing the person that was the closest to me in my whole life, I got a gift and people find it very hard to comprehend how, how I could ever get to a place where something like that could ever have a silver lining, but it just does. I I am forever changed. My perspective is changed. My, my goals, my missions in life, being of service to other people. I mean, all these things came from something horrific. Yes. Horrific. Well, that's like the, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to go ahead. No, go. Well, that's the beautiful, like there, there is sort of a, a, a beautiful learning that, um, everything will all is always balance itself. If you'll allow for the balance of that thing, like the darker something is, the more that, uh, the more there's an opportunity for all of this light to come in. Like my mom and my brother were murdered, but thousands of people showed up with casseroles and, and to show that they cared. And, and that in and of itself was so overwhelming that you realized like, there is so much contained in the experience of being alive that yeah. we take for granted all the time. Yes, absolutely. So I have to know, did you finish <laughs> the play? So, okay. So what ended up <laughs> happening is I did, I did finish the play. I submitted it to a competition. It won the competition and got a staged reading at a theater downtown in New York city at an off-Broadway theater, a uh, life jacket theater. Amazing. Um, But here's what's interesting is that I did it and I didn't anticipate how hard it would be. Um, I also wrote that play for me. Right. And then when I got it up in front of an audience, realized, oh, I wasn't thinking about my audience yet. And it felt a little like I was stringing my intestines up and hanging them like laundry for everyone to look at. Yes. Um, So after that experience, the other problem, too, was that I wrote (coughs) – I'm so sorry. I wrote – a 250 page play that oh, I had wow. to cut down to 90 pages. Uh, and uh, I went away for this t- uh, for to get certified in, in gateless writing and the method I was talking about. Yes. And we were talking about this project and she was like, oh, so you were writing a book and you were trying to make it be a play. And <laughs> like, I was like, no, <laughs> that is what happened. That right. What happened. Well, you, I- were, you were writing a play that turned into a book. Yes. Well, and I think it's that we sometimes, like you were talking about like that if then, yeah. um, we are so married to our expectations. I sat down and said, I'm writing a play. Um, what I was writing wanted to be a book, but yeah. I was the one who was being stubborn about what yes. the form should be. Yes. Um, so now I am writing a book. I'm writing a memoir and it's, it's like, I get to write, I don't write plays anymore, but I, I've got a, a movie that came out on the Hallmark channel earlier this year. Oh, There's wonderful. two more movies that are coming out this December. And then I've got like four more that I have contracts for that I'm writing right now. Amazing. So I get to still write plays. Yes. And that. Um, but now I'm writing a memoir uh, that's uh, basically more about going on this journey um, and what it's like to be a millennial in your 20s, dealing with this kind of trauma, but also like how you rebuild your life. Like yeah. 
my life is so much bigger and wilder and like more exciting now than I ever thought it would be before mom and Jim were killed. Like I gave a Ted talk and I have movies on this channel and I married this amazing man who, um, who just like shout out Matt Montana. Uh, yeah, like, go Matt. <laughs> like, but when we were, I mean, when I was at the, uh, when I was still at the hedge fund and not sure if I wanted to be a writer or not, I had been the breadwinner for a little while and then he um, got a promotion so that his salary would equal what the two of us had been earning combined. And we could have saved money. And sure. instead he said, I want you to quit your job now because I think it's important that you become a writer because I think it's going to heal people. Mm. And you should do it now before we feel the difference in income. Oh, and so shout like, out to Matt Montana. <laughs> <laughs> but he has been my best friend. He is like find this like the other advice find yourself someone who he has never tried to fix me he has mm. never gotten off on fixing me or on my brokenness or the right. broken like, birdie factor he has always seen me as strong even when I've been on the floor doubled over heaving sobbing sure he's always been he has always seen me as strong and he's always seen that release of emotion as strong right so that is like you have to find people who see you as strong when you're willing to be vulnerable. Like yes, first and foremost, absolutely. Well, that I am not surprised by <laughs> the book and the um, you know writing for the Hallmark Channel, and I'm not surprised by any any of it because you are so well spoken. You are an absolute joy to listen to, and an unbelievable messenger. And I agree with Matt Montana when he said that you are going to do work that's going to heal people. So thank you so much. That's so sweet. Of course, no, I, I mean it from my heart. And I would love for you, um, if you could just give a couple of resources for anybody in um, the Beautiful Disaster Tribe and beyond that has picked up on some of the things that you've said and, and wants to know more about it. So if you can talk about, um, you know, the journaling that you did, the what was it? boundless or limitless writing. Oh, it's a, it's gateless writing. Gateless um, writing. Yeah. So if you can just drop how they follow you, where they follow you, how they connect with you and any resources that you think are important for beginning to start this process of forgiveness. Totally. Yeah. Um, I would say you can definitely follow me. Uh, I have a website, sarahmontana.com, or um, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, it's facebook.com slash Sarah E. Montana. Instagram is Sarah E. Montana. Um, Twitter is, but I'm not really, I'm not a big tweeter. You're not a big tweeter? Um, <laughs> not a big tweeter. Uh, I, I just like, I like, I know people who love Twitter. Um, it just gets like Twitter. I love like I'm a lurker on Twitter, but yeah. I don't. It can get crazy. Twitter is very uh, loud. It's a very loud place. Totally. And it's a lot of like people just get super angry on Twitter. Whereas <laughs> yes. like nobody's. And I'm all for like anger when it's the right time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, uh, but then um, in terms of resources, absolutely check out Gateless Writing. Um, you can go to, I think it's um, it's Suzanne Kingsbury is her name. Okay. And uh, she's the woman who runs that. Um, it, for books starting out, I really love if you're still going, if you're still in the thick of trauma or you feel like you're caught in that loop, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm that is fantastic about understanding why your brain is responding the way it does in trauma. He worked with soldiers who were suffering from PTSD. Ah. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. Um, I read everything I could get my hands on. I read, I mean, like Jungian psychology. I read a bunch of spiritual stuff. I mean, everything from like 
Brene Brown to, you know, whether it was like, I, I mean, all different kinds of spiritual, like I kind of just like anything that caught my interest, yeah. I read it. And yes. so I just encourage you to like read, 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 read. There's no such, you're going to read things and some of it you're going to disagree with. You're going to read some things and one sentence will change your life. Just right. don't stop seeking. Right. Um, the other biggest thing I would say is do something physical mm. for for me, it was singing and ah, dancing. Yes. Um, and that sounds so weird. I know most people, it's like, oh, I did yoga or I started running. Right. All of those things are great. I loved singing. Um, I was an opera singer back in the day. And uh, I actually was music theater before they, like I was leaning more toward music theater before they died. But I went to Manhattan School of Music and got my master's in opera, not because I thought I wanted to be an opera singer, but because singing was keeping me alive right. after they died. Right. It's controlled screaming and it's right. so dramatic and everybody's like stabbed in operas. Yeah. So you're like, you're like, oh, my story's nothing compared to like Tosca's. Right. So, um, I like the, and the beautiful thing about art too, I think is like, if you, if you want to perform or if you watch movies or TV shows, um, your brain is going to experience what the characters are experiencing, but it's, external. Again, it's right. a safe container for you to experience that yes. thing. Um, I stopped having panic attacks. I, I was in therapy. I definitely recommend going to therapy. Um, but this is like, sorry, little baby short story. I had been like trying to get to the bottom of my panic attacks and my husband was super into Dexter and like against my better judgment, <laughs> I watched Dexter right. after Jim had been killed. Oh, and, geez. Uh, but there was an episode where, uh, he's, you know, Dexter's like killing the guy is going to kill the guy on the table. And that, that guy had killed, um, a mother and son. Mm. And, uh, he's like, I, you he's know, the you're, vigilante. You're, yes. Right. And he's, he's like, you're, uh, he's like, he puts up pictures of the people that the, his victims have killed. And he's like, wait, I didn't kill that little girl. And it was the sister. And he was like, you killed her when you killed the two of them. Ah. And I got this massive panic attack watching it because yes. it verbalized something I could not verbalize yet. And then I went to the bathroom and finally like said, instead of trying to tell myself I'm okay, what if I told myself I'm not okay yeah. and just let myself not be okay. And I finally cried and like chest broke and just like sobbed into just like ugly crying like that. Like, I think I'm going to throw up. Crying. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't know I could leak this much. Such a release. But, but I didn't have another panic attack after that for, mm. you know, and it, it for, I want to say years until somebody like, you know, tried to break into my apartment in New York. And then I was like, oh, this is okay. Things yeah. back. Yeah. Um, just a few things. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, but I would say that the um, art like whether it's TV, movies, seeing live things, especially music, like throw yourself into art because it, it, the reason it's there is because it, not only can it contain your feelings, but somebody else had to feel what you're feeling in order to create it. Yes. And that will let you know you're not alone. Amazing. Absolutely Sorry. amazing. No, that's, that's, it's, I love it. All, all these things that you're sharing are tangible and practical and realistic. And if you, if you want it, if you if you really have the desire to start beginning to heal, I mean, these are just a few things that you can get started with. And you mentioned that you were getting like a certification for the. Oh, yeah. yeah, I did. I did the certification for gateless writing last year. And so actually, if you live in the New York area, um, I'm hosting a salon where people can write and do exactly what we were talking about, where you free write, you read out loud. 
Um, and then you get feedback right away that tells you like what was strong about your work, what worked, what had resonance, where the power is both yeah. in the story and in your actual like writing craft wise. Um, and, the, and actually there are like, I think hundreds of teachers who are certified in this method across the country. So there may be somebody who's either doing it in your city or your area, or there are people who use this method and they do it online oh, in like Skype amazing. sessions, and Zoom sessions. Yes. So if you go to Suzanne Kingsbury's website, um, she'll have like a database of teachers or there's like a Facebook group um, where if you're looking for, you're like, hey, I really want to uh, try this writing method out and be with a salon of people who are working on their writing this way. There's somebody around the country That's who great. is who can do this. Yeah, yeah. and I'll, I'll post all the links too in the podcast and in the YouTube. So I, 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 I this could go on forever. I feel like I could talk to you forever. I am so grateful and honored that you invested your time with us and the beautiful disaster tribe and that you have gifted us with your story and these amazing practical steps that women just like you and totally not like you can take to begin their journey of forgiveness which is essentially freeing themselves so thank you beyond thank you measure so for being here Thank you so much for having me. This is, you're incredible. You're such a like beautiful, authentic. It, like this felt like I was just talking to a best friend. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank like... you. Well, our missions are very much aligned. You know, the, the beautiful disaster brand is specifically designed to embrace our perfect imperfections, to wear our stories like a badge of courage, like a badge of honor, to use our voices for good and to be this collective, this tribe of empowerment and healing. And we're there through the shit sandwiches. We're there through the trauma and the pain, but we're there for the joy and the healing and the successes and the just the survival and the freedom of it all. So. You were just a natural fit, and we are so proud to have you in the Beautiful Disaster Tribe as an honorary member. So Yay. I'm sure it's not the last we will hear from you. And everybody out there who's listening and watching, please click on the links below, follow along with Sarah, do all the things she's doing. I know I'm gonna do some of the things she's doing because we've all got some forgiveness we could work on. And once again, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. And we just love you. I love you all so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so in love with this tribe and I'm just so happy to be a part of it now. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs> bye.